we tried to do the intro for quite a while, but then it started getting more and more Alan Partridge. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Offscript by Hey Radio, a podcast for the tech community. My name's Josh Nesbitt and I run a software consultancy called Stack based in Leeds and I will be your host for this episode. For the very first episode of Offscript, I'm very excited to be chatting with my good friend James Hall. He runs an agency called Parallax based in Leeds. We discuss some of the differences in building things on the web over the last 10 years. So that's enough from me. Here's the episode. I'm sat here with James Hall from Parallax. Hi, Josh. Hi, James. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. How are you? Very good, thank you. Um, I'm really, really thankful for you being the the first guest on the on the first episode of the Hey Podcast. Ace. Um, so I I felt like you'd be a fantastic first guest. Um, We've known each other for quite a while now, and um, a lot of our conversations in the pub and uh, and after work have mainly been around um, kind of things that we're enjoying at work at the moment, things that maybe um, getting on our nerves a little bit, yeah. Uh, and a lot of the things that seem to um, they seem to revolve around is, is the JavaScript tooling because we both work in separate languages. Uh, you're mainly PHP. Yep, for my sins. For your sins, uh, and I'm I'm mainly from a Ruby background. But the common the common element is usually working with JavaScript in those projects. Yeah. So, um, I thought I'd kind of ha- get you on the first episode just to chat really about um, about the history of of kind of that tooling, um, kind of where we've come from. Um, the kind of topic for this podcast is mainly wasn't the web just better ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that, that's not really just a nostalgic look on on the the history of the web, but it's more just kind of talking about the evolution of the ecosystem and and kind of where we've come from and, and where we are now. Um, so I just thought it'd be fun to to chat about that. Yeah, sounds good. So yeah, I'm from a digital agency called Parallax. Um, we make web applications, websites, web apps, that kind of thing. Yeah. And me and Josh often end up in the pub talking about what we're working on and. How it used to be better in the sort of good old days, <laughs> or did it? Um, yeah. So my career sort of started out doing interactive CD-ROMs, maybe about 15, 16 years ago, something like that. Showing your age a little bit there. Yeah, just a bit. Um, <laughs> but it was a real exciting creative time for the web then, because yeah. it was it's just a solid runtime where you could make and express yourself. You could put sound effects in there, you could do... You do all sorts of uh, server-side calls, and that predated sort of Ajax, really, didn't it? They had yeah. that uh, flash object thing. Yeah, of course. Um, so people were making some really cool stuff. Um, Habbo Hotel, do you remember that? I remember Habbo. I actually worked on a, a company that did um, similar products to that, kind of virtual world for, for children. It was Oh, that was at Dubit, wasn't it? Yeah, it was at Dubit, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Um, so we used to build um, really these amazing, really immersive virtual worlds for children. Um, and it was it was similar to Habbo Hotel. Uh, they did them for Nickelodeon Disney. Um, and yeah, it was, just, it was just an awesome time for the web, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, the 
real struggles back then with using HTML. I think Dynamic Drive was the only place you could get any sort of <laughs> half-decent working JavaScript, and it was mostly just things following your cursor and, and stuff like that. That was kind of like the um, the predecessor to Stack Overflow, I guess, in some ways. You know, yeah, you just yeah. go on there, that would be a copy-and-paste source for the day. Yeah, and people would comment on it with the bugs that they found in, in a version of Netscape or whatever, and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then hopefully get it patched up. But it was a real kludge, a real hack to get stuff sort of going. Yeah. And... So the only real way to make something interactive and magical was Flash. And that all started to sort of sort of change around the sort of 2005 sort of era. Yeah. When I think that's when the term Ajax was coined. And it just, it, the, JavaScript was just at that point getting to the point where it started to be not as broken. There was enough hacks <laughs> yeah. in place where you could actually do cross-browser Ajax. Yeah, we can piece this together. We can make it work consistently. Yeah, that's it. Um, and... Ruby on Rails started then baking that into their framework. So that's how Prototype was born. Yeah. So a developer there that was working on Ruby on Rails started having all these sort of dollar sign shortcuts and everything. Yeah. Um, and then Scriptaculous, as you remember, came along, which was all the whizzy effects. Yeah, that was uh, in every Rails demo ever, I believe. Yeah, oh, every to-do app demo. <laughs> they just have that horrible yellow flash <laughs> yeah. where new new items pop in. Yeah, dot um, fade in. Cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, you kind of, you, you did need all that, this, the sort of new way of communicating that this page has changed because people weren't used to it. No. Um, it, because it's, yeah, you'd be used to just a whole clunky page refresh. So this little yellow flash to draw your attention to it. I think it was probably sorry factored out of the initial version of Basecamp. Oh, uh, okay. Because um, I think that had all the yellow effects. And yeah, I think it was, they were starting to sprinkle bits of it in the application, weren't they? And um, I think, as you said, people weren't used to that kind of dynamic nature of web pages. So it was... Like I think everyone was keen to abuse that animation to say, look, you know, yeah, we've we done something cool, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so, um, so the because um, I'm I'm from the Rails background, I you know, uh, Dubit, you mentioned actually, I, I first um, got to use Rails uh, in a in a kind of professional environment, and um, Rails taught me a lot of things, um, you know, prototypes, scriptaculous, um, MVC patterns in in frameworks, yeah. um, Ruby, and and all that. So. Um, I think I'm. I kind of took a lot of that for granted, because um, yeah. obviously, uh, Scriptaculous came out of. Um, I think it was Thomas Fuchs, wasn't it? Who? That's right. Yeah. Who made that? Well, the, the thing I liked about Ruby on Rails is that it was a sort of batteries included yeah. web application framework, and the reason it feels so complete is because it it started off as Basecamp, yeah, and then they took all the bits out that weren't Basecamp, yeah, and then open sourced it, yeah. <laughs> so it was an application, but without the bits that make it an app <laughs> yeah <laughs> which i really thought was interesting at the time and that's when i started I, my language of choice was php so i started using some horrible i think it was on php on tracks or something uh, yeah i remember um, there's a lot of rails influence frameworks weren't there yeah and then eventually stumbled across uh, cake php community and yeah. started contributing quite a bit to that because after that the you know framework you know when rails started to get a lot more popular um framework started to just kind of explode so you know from there you had cake you had code igniter um you had loads of other frameworks that came out in all these different languages that um not that rails was the first framework of course but um i feel like it was definitely one of the more popular ones when the, that kind of boom happened yeah definitely and i think as times progressed the those sort of batteries included frameworks have 
have sort of fallen behind the wayside a little bit, except yeah. for Laravel, which is seeing a real surge at the moment. Yeah. But I think that's partly to do with, I blame package managers for a lot of things. <laughs> um, but mainly package managers, they, while good intentioned, cause a hell of a lot of pain. I guess it's kind of uh, the, the, the whole, I mean, package managers and dependency management is obviously fantastic. And, yeah. and um, there, there's been a, a huge amount of problems that have been solved, um, particularly in the early days of jQuery on the web and having, you know, I know jQuery, jQuery had that way that you could run different versions of jQuery in the, in the browser at the same time. Yeah. Um, package management has started to really help those kind of problems. So it is fantastic. However, that whole ethos of bring your own everything yeah, <laughs> um, probably diluted things a little bit. Well, because we went from, I don't know if you remember CodeKit, where you could compile all your SAS and yeah. stuff into into nicely compiled assets and everything. Yeah. It was a nice little Mac app that you'd just run on each project. So because we're an agency, we might have anywhere between 30 and 50 active projects that we need to sort of keep, keep alive. Yeah. So darting around each project and just running that on your Mac was really nice. And then we started moving to NPM. So we'd have you'd have a package in each project that would then you'd run a little build script to run that. Yeah, that started out all right, and then it just sort of started growing into this absolute beast where <laughs> every project's got five ten minutes of dependency downloading. I don't know if you remember, but npm used to be dog slow. Oh yeah, it was yeah. really nasty, and it didn't have all the nice thoughts around package locking and stuff that it does now. Yeah, I think it was. Um Initially, it started off as a, a quite a primitive solution to the dependency management, um, where it saw the whole every tree of dependencies separate. Obviously, they're flat in the directory structure now, which is a lot, yeah, a lot better. Which it means is, it works on Windows, yeah, <laughs> which helps. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is obviously a fantastic tool. I'm certainly not knocking it. But um, package management is really hard. Um, so in the in the Ruby world, we had um, we had Bundler, um, which was created by this awesome um, programmer called Yudacats. Uh, yeah, um, who has since gone to build Yarn, I believe, with uh, with some other people. Ah, nice. Um, so he he basically, I don't know why, but he just loves building package managers. <laughs> uh, well, I made the error of building a package manager, <laughs> <laughs> which I called FCPM, oh, and it was it was meant to be fuck NPM. But um, but I actually got Jamis book to help me on the Ruby version <laughs> of it. I don't know if you remember. I do remember actually. Yeah, um, Jamis uh, being the uh, one of the ex programmers, uh, the original programmers on Basecamp actually. Yeah, that's it. Um, but we were having this problem with our builds, and I made a very crude solution that worked for us. Yeah, and I was like, actually, this could work for everyone. But then Yarn came along and ate my lunch because it was so much quicker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't actually, I don't want to build package managers. Can you? Because then you just have to support it forever. Turns out it's really hard. As yeah, well. it is. Yeah, um, yeah. I think um, Yarn kind of came at the at the right time in some it, ways. It saved me basically from <laughs> yeah. ripping my hair out. Also um, had some pretty decent um, funding from Facebook and, and the likes. So, yeah, well, they must have had exactly the same problem. With yeah. All their devs running lots and lots of little microservices, different dependencies. Yeah. If they can reduce the build times, they reduce server costs and all sorts. So. Yeah. Um, I just want to kind of mention, uh, I just read a post recently by um, Tim Cadleck, uh, who was uh, one of the speakers at All They Hey, actually. Um, and um, it's, it's called Use the Platform. And one of the things he mentions, which I thought was quite a nice highlight, is um, you know the creators of, of standards on the web and, and the kind of people who are building the, the core foundations of the web as we know it um, have to really carefully consider specifications. You know, obviously... Yeah. We, we can we can hack any old project together and, and check it up there and fix those problems later on. Um, whereas they have to be quite mindful of that. 
Um, thought it was quite a nice way of looking at the web and looking at the web as a platform, really. Um, yeah, because it has to stay in there forever. Yeah. I mean, if look at, um, at uh, Google and Shadow DOM. They were so convinced that mm. Shadow DOM was going to be part of the official whatever it was. Um, they did a load of patches to WebKit. Yeah. They based a whole framework on it. They had like Polymer and stuff like that. Yeah. And then one day, Apple, because they run the the main WebKit project basically yeah. deleted everything <laughs> to do with Shadow DOM <laughs> yeah. and we're like that's because we need to get 60 frames per second on the iPhone <laughs> which if it's a proper standard you, that's not a good enough reason no but they killed it in its infancy <laughs> and I think that's when Google were like fuck you we're going to fork WebKit yeah all right make then. blink <laughs> let's have a go then <laughs> but web standards are so important because it, it means everyone can agree on like a, a solid base like yeah like you've got all the new um, sort of uh, low power mode APIs and stuff like that, mm. and all stuff that people agree that we need. But instead of one vendor running off and creating what they reckon, yeah. Which, to be fair, I think Apple are quite guilty of sometimes. They are. I think um, they, they they play the um, they play the community card quite a lot, but I'm not sure if they always. They're do doing that. what Microsoft used to do yeah. with IE6. They they just add stuff because it's cool. Mm. everyone develops for it and then everyone else is left out in the cold yeah it does seem a bit monopolistic yeah even though it's all the fanboys going to be hating me now but (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm probably one of them but (laughs) but i agree (laughs) because even around like css animations and stuff they just everything was hyphen webkit this vendor prefixes are you know the opposite route really i mean i remember um, the earlier days i mean probably still still now to be fair but the early days of when you were doing some you know box shadows and all that kind of stuff the amount of vendor prefixes you needed to get that working initially yeah well i mean i guess that vendor prefixes were brought in to try and fix the problem of different implementations but it's all it's done is encouraged vendors to add more (laughs) shit (laughs) further fragmentation where actually what we need to do is have a a single standard really yeah that's it um, yeah, I mean, in in that post from Timmy does highlight that you know that's the reason a lot of things still work on the Newton. You know, these yeah, days, yeah. really old devices still render web pages in a in a reasonable way, really. Yeah, and I think only recently have have we lost the ability for really really old tech to render the new sites. Yeah, if you if you're building a React rendered fancy pants page you're not serving the HTML of the page necessarily. Yeah. A lot of people miss server-side rendering. I don't know how many times you've seen when you post a link in Slack and it's got like the template code oh, in yeah. the title yeah. and meta description because yeah. new developers don't understand that that's JavaScript and that's not how that works. They yeah. just they just get the React starter kit, crack yeah. on, and SEO be damned. And then Google <laughs> like, oh shit, we're going to have to crawl the internet using JavaScript now. <laughs> yeah, But it's... It's kind of sad in a way because it means we've lost the the ability to render a page because page should just be content yeah. really, shouldn't it? Yeah, I think um, I, I kind of enjoy that though. You know, I, I, it's not not the broken web. <laughs> I kind of enjoy um, the simplicity of just a simple web page. I don't know yeah. if I'm just really old or not, but no. I think the problem is that what we end up doing is going full circle and, and then having just a single static page at the end of it you know yeah uh, there's a massive movement um phil hawksworth um one of the well rmc for all day hey um he champions jamstack and he champions uh, netlify as a product and static sites and absolutely and, yeah. and i'm all for it because you know uh, 
The problem is a lot of the time people don't need these complex React sites. They don't need that for personal portfolios. They don't need them even for mid medium sized sites really. No, if you're building a React slider from scratch yeah. for just because yeah. you're doing it wrong. <laughs> of course it is a great learning exercise. Oh yeah. But you're you yeah. doing it but you're doing it wrong. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. If any of my devs are listening to this, stop building your... <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> we don't need another carousel. <laughs> um, so, in, interestingly, you mentioned Flash earlier. Uh, I Do you ever think we'll go back to that, you, that walled garden? Do you ever feel we'll, we'll go back to a situation where we'll start running kind of these applets in the browser again? Like the Apple App Store, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, there is a real problem with sort of the traditional web in that if you really do want the best UX, a lot of companies are going for native apps now. Yeah. And I noticed sort of like, just to give an example, like in the recipe box world, there's like Gusto and HelloFresh and all the rest. Yeah. Years ago, they were hiring for like hybrid roles where they'd have like a, they'd do a web interface and they'd augment it with bits of native. Yeah. Now they're hiring for pure native and they're building pure separate native apps yeah. out to make the experience good. So it, there is a danger that we'll start losing developer mindshare to native app development. I know that's not something we've chatted about in the pub before, but um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think on the native on the proper web um, we're going to see that kind of walled garden anymore. Yeah. But we do risk losing them to these other to, to a different ecosystem. Yeah. Which is sad, really. But yeah, I, there was a post I can't I'm, I can't remember who wrote it. I'm afraid, but it was um, it was claiming that Flash was the, the most creative the web's ever been. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's an interesting one, really, because you could argue, I guess, that, you know, modern-day apps, uh, you know, on Android and iOS are, are creating an entire new ecosystem. You know, animation frameworks are amazing on these on these devices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got, like, Airbnb's Lottie and stuff like that, where yeah. you can export from After Effects into, into some... Uh, JSON thing that then beautifully renders on all sorts of stuff but it feels like they're just trying to get back to the flash days (laughs) (laughs) oh render um, vector graphics animations really really simply with not very much bandwidth taken sounds I guess it rings a bell (laughs) (laughs) I guess you've also got um, you know projects like React Native kind of bridging that gap as well so um, using kind of modern web web tools and web web development uh, environments to um, just to a different compile target essentially yeah I I think what's changed since the flash days is flash was very good at displaying the same thing to everyone yeah and people have got much higher expectations these days they want it to look like their mobile browser into their, their uh, operating system UI they want it to adhere to dark mode and light mode they yeah. want it to be on different screen sizes and be responsive and mm. so while the web was much simpler 10 years ago the requirements have changed yeah the briefs changed <laughs> it's not people sat on their desktop machine new agency <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it <laughs> i know the briefs changed but can we still pay the same um so it's it's a lot more it has to be a lot more complex through necessity unfortunately doesn't it yeah i think so um definitely i am um, i want to kind of move on a little bit from flash um because we both clearly loved it oh yeah um, <laughs> but jquery was was kind of a really exciting time for the web you know at the point where um those standards were maybe not so um established um yeah dom traversal was to put it mildly an absolute fucking nightmare yeah it was not 
humanly possible to do it in all browsers <laughs> no. in any sort of sane way. Yeah. Um, so when John Reisig was like, this, I've had enough, and he just put a nice little wrapper around it, and that dollar sign syntax he borrowed from Prototype. Yeah. Because Prototype was dollar dollar for their it was, query selector. That was thing. it. Was, um, was it, was it one dollar for, um, for IDs. IDs and double dollar for class? That was it, yeah. 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 And John Reisig was like, hang on, we'll just use CSS selectors for everything. And if yeah. you do hash, we'll do a speed improvement underneath, yeah. which uses get element by ID or whatever. So, yeah, it was a, it was a series of clever kludges, I guess, mm. to make it work in browsers. And mo- more, most importantly, it was, it was Ajax support as well. And it let people sort of build a sort of ecosystem around it, around plugins, and it yeah. set up the open source community in a way where they could contribute to it that was the real uh the real turning point i think when they when they allowed plugins uh, uh, and uh, that was the real empowerment of the community i think and that's when things went a bit crazy the ajax one was definitely a turning point though um yeah standardizing that that kind of ajax request cross browser was was a big thing at the time as soon as you show someone look i can make a http request and then I can update some content. Yeah. You didn't even have to explain the code. It was obvious from the code from what it does. Yeah. So that really helped with its adoption. Much like, I think WordPress was sort of a sim- similar time, maybe a little bit before. Right. Both very simple ideas, and, and then both became dramatically popular, and they're not going to go away for a long, long time. No. But new devs will turn their nose up at those two things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thing is, WordPress uh, still to this day solves quite a few problems. Um, it, it does. It has its place. I mean, I don't like to touch it with a 10-foot barge pole. I mean, I wouldn't use that either. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, it has its purpose, doesn't it? Yeah, I uh, I certainly I certainly think so. Um, but, it, but it's interesting, the kind of um, the ripple effect that the, the jQuery project kind of kicked off with a lot of people and i think um it, it definitely paved the way for you know npm for react and for for people using the web in that way to build entire immersive applications yeah and it was it was the first thing that i saw where it was like this api is being designed around humans yeah this looks like how you want to think about this problem yeah it might all be completely wrong now but <laughs> <laughs> it, when when you sort of approached every idea, you'd be like, "Ah, oh, yeah, get this data from here, update this element." Yeah. Um, and then since we've learned that 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 creates quite a bit of tangly, awful code, but it, at the time it, it was it was sort of readme-driven development, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of projects took that on, and the successful ones would start with a nice, "This is how you use it. This is a nice little simple bit of code that yeah. gets you going." Rather than some sprawling, horrible API docs where <laughs> yeah. with inconsistent naming and all sorts of stuff. I guess that's the thing because jQuery, you know, a lot of the initial examples just did the, um, the, the document ready handler and then you just chuck all your code inside that. Um, there was not really any um, advice or um, examples of how you would then grow that into a larger app. So you ended up having just huge, huge files full of um, just literally like on click handlers and yeah. things like that. Yeah, well, and you'd get new devs. And they would have very little JavaScript knowledge. Mm. And they don't even know they're using closures and all yeah. the little clever features that the API uses to make it easy to read. Yeah. They just start using all these cool JavaScript features and they yeah. don't really know what they are, which is why you get on Stack Overflow, how can I do XYZ in jQuery? Because they don't know JavaScript. Yeah. They just know 
the jQuery API. There's, so. a, there's a very similar problem. Uh, there still is actually in, in Rails um, where people um, can't, and, and it's partly due to the um, the language itself because Rails uh, Ruby's so flexible uh, and, and so extensible that you can kind of you can't really figure out where Rails stops and Ruby starts and, yeah, and yeah. vice versa. And I think you know there's a lot of people who are just using plain Ruby and apps and, and trying to use loads of Rails helpers and it's just all all failing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely. Definitely an interesting problem. Well, a lot of people hate the magic of things like Ruby, but, you know, I kind of enjoy it <laughs> when yeah. you know how it works underneath. I think that's the key. It's because it's, um, in Ruby there is a bit of magic here and there. In, in Rails there's, there's a bit of magic, but it's all driven by convention. Um, yeah. You know, if you want to dig under and, and understand how Rails works, you can, you can easily do that. Yeah. Um, in some frameworks there's a bit too much magic, I feel, but in, in Rails maybe not. Yeah, it feels like we're moving more to away from convention with all because it's hard to have convention when everyone's got a different set of packages that they use for a project. Yeah, definitely. I, I kind of I want to pick on Webpack here. Yeah. Because it feels sorry like an easy target. Yeah, go for um, it. Webpack is a fantastic tool. It's, it's definitely solved the problem in terms of you know asset compilation pipelines and all that kind of stuff. And replaced it with another problem, <laughs> yeah. which is. One person understands Webpack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Someone goes and sits in a room for a week and writes the config for your app, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the, that's that's a good example of of something that's maybe not been um, driven by um, convention, and also because uh, maybe it's hard to um, develop the conventions for what the problem Webpack's solving. But yeah. all, but also, I think um, it's hard to. It's hard to try and build that kind of tool from um, how does the user want to use this? Because actually, all the, all you're thinking about is how these things knit together underneath. Yeah, it's hard to build a public API for that. I think. Well, every time you add a configuration option to your library, you're you're sort of increasing the complexity mm -hmm. exponentially. So yeah, just keeping it simple and keep giving everyone a standard out the box. This is how it works. Yeah, it makes it so much simpler. Once you start adding all these config options in. It, it just doesn't work, yeah. I feel. Yeah, I agree. But the, because we're dealing with a much more complex world, it, it is needed. You do have legacy projects that you're trying to upgrade and folder structures aren't the same and you need to do odd things. So yeah. it's it's a tricky one, really. I mean, I really enjoy stuff like standard JS where they're very opinionated. Yeah, It's a code formatter, you run it, you get no say. Like you, you just have to like it all. Yeah, I mean the, the amount of agency hours that have probably been lost bike shedding um, semicolon. Oh yeah, yeah. or <laughs> fighting over whether, whether the brace goes on the next line or not. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not that it's not important. It's just that it's less important. Yeah, as long as it's consistent. Yeah, it's fine, isn't I, it? I think that's the thing. It's it's when you have the inconsistency and the chaos that it's very difficult for newcomers to adapt to those code bases. So. Um, which I think is is one of the one of my issues with Webpack is is that uh, you know over ten different projects you could go and look at the Webpack config and someone solve that in a different way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I'm not sure what's to blame for that. I'm not blaming any person, that's for sure. But I'm just not sure what's led to that kind of confusion uh, and and kind of I guess the the problem is maybe initially documentation wasn't as as good as it could have been or. Yeah, and I guess because it executes in parallel, it's quite difficult to debug potentially. And yeah, definitely. Um, um, but another thing is out the so 
you know, take your um, your kind of complete frameworks like Rails and, and then look at something like um, just React initially. So React, when it first came out, was was kind of a, a very heavily promoted as a component um, framework, I guess, a component library. Yeah, um, well, yeah, my understanding of it was that initially it was almost just a virtual DOM yeah, and not much more than that. Yeah. And since then, the ecosystem's evolved and they've added more bits... Everyone that uses React seems to use a different collection of things. Yeah, it seems a bit weird. Which is interesting because you know instead of this really opinionated framework like Rails or like Laravel, um, you have um, the community creating projects like um, React Boilerplate and, and similar things where they piece together all of these community tools to to make a framework, if you will, I guess. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. I, I'm I'm trying to decide whether that's a, a better route or not because you don't have a single. Um, I'm not sure if you have the same mentality of someone building a framework such as Rails because if a new tool comes along, they'll, they'll kind of add that to the, the keychain, the, the toolkit. Yeah, know. well, this is where I think Next comes in because it, it sort of goes, I like your virtual DOM, I like these bits. <laughs> yeah. What about this for static site generation and server-side rendering and some other cool bits? And hosting, if, if you look at yeah. um, the Zite stuff as well. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like he's gone, right, take all these bits, all in one it. Yeah this is my opinion of how you should absolutely do this mm. and if you don't like it tough shit yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but everyone does like it because it's really simple and it looks nice um, so it's interesting because that, that kind of um, top down approach to building a framework kind of works you know yeah. DHH um, David Hammer Hansen is famous for a very opinionated view on what should be in Rails um, yeah and it works <laughs> yeah it's like going to like a cheesemongers or something and they pick all the finest little bits out <laughs> for you and lay it all out. Yeah, and, and they, they won't always get it right. Yeah. Um, you know, Rails famously has turbo links, which I, I think is an <laughs> awful idea. Yeah. Um, but most of the time. But lots of people started using turbo links, I think, back in the day. Yeah. Before, this was all before push state and stuff, so you had to do the sort of... Um, URL fragment stuff, didn't you? Yeah, the hash path equals and all that. Well, yeah. yeah, just really bad broken URLs came out of it, didn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. But I think um, GitHub actually earlier earlier on, um, they had PJAX, which was, I yes. think I think may have been Turbolinks, or they might have swapped it out of Turbolinks. I can't remember which inspired which. Yeah, like a full page Ajax thing, basically. Yeah, I think they used it mainly on like the pull requests and issue pages where you got the little tabs to switch between the code diff and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, very quick way for yeah, back-end devs, basically, to make it look like you've written an Ajax app. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but obviously, because it was only loading in fragments of the page, it made some really weird side effects happen, like, you know, the the head of the of the page didn't get loaded in properly, so you didn't get some dependencies and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it was a proper kludge, and I guess that's what React is trying to solve, yeah. is that you have one state for the page, and you update it, and magic happens. It's... um. I really like React. I, I've, I use React in uh, a lot of the applications I build for clients. Yeah, um, I'm more of a Vue guy, but oh, uh, my front ends are very much more React. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I, I could be honest, I haven't played too much with Vue. Um, I'd, I'd definitely like to experiment they're, more with it. They're both very, very similar now. They keep borrowing ideas from each other. <laughs> so Vue's just added hooks and stuff now. Oh. So they, right. And that you can have... You don't have to have one element at the root anymore, which I think is a, a kludge that they borrowed from the React community. Uh, okay, so you can essentially split them into smaller mini apps inside one single page. Um, no, I think it's just the you know when you're rendering out a, an element, you need oh, one right. top level div or whatever yes. it is. Yeah, uh, uh, right. They've done some magic that means you don't anymore. 
All right. <laughs> um, so I just want to um, just mention, we mentioned um, Next.js. Uh, yeah. Jess. Sorry. We mentioned Next.js. <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't say Jess. <laughs> um, and um, the Zeit um, HQ creator, um, I think it's pronounced Guillermo Roch. I'd go with that, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's famous for championing monorepos. Um, yes. Which is an interesting... Um, you know, he mentions how uh, there's just so much, uh, so many problems solved. And I think what he's talking about mainly is the community side of problems, you know, the uh, the visibility of lots of code happening in one place. Yeah, that's it. I mean, if you have lots of fragmented repos that all depend on each other, yeah, it's really, really tricky to mm. get them all updated and in sync. I think some people have made tooling around it to make it nice. Yeah. But you probably need a few people on that all the time making yeah. it <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a monorepo is great. It doesn't mean it has to be deployed as one thing. Mm. You can deploy them all as different microservices if you want. But to have one view of the world is a lot easier for people to grasp. And it's what they do at Google. So yeah. all their products are in one massive repo somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've built, uh, I can't remember what the tooling is called. I think it's Perforce, but it's got some magic bits, Google bits on top. Yeah. But it lets you like... You know, back in the SVN day, you could check out just a directory. Yeah. So you can do all that. But the advantage for Google is that if, you, if you're adding a feature that requires some new bits on the login page or whatever, you could branch off, change the login page and a little bit of YouTube and mm. a little bit of Google Mail, whatever you needed to do. Maybe some GDPR compliance horrible branch merge. <laughs> <laughs> but you Fix could, all the things. Yeah, you could change every service and mm. deploy it all at once. Which is insane how they've managed to get that to work. But I think um, that's the the benefit of the monorepo stuff. It's the, it's not just um, the um, instrumentation around uh, deployment and all that kind of stuff, but I think it's the visibility as well. So yeah, um, when I was working with Sky on one of their kind of large internal frameworks, um, one of the things that we really wanted to do is, is kind of create a better sense of community around all of the things we were building with this framework. Yeah. Um, and obviously the beauty of having it in one place means that everyone sees everything. So everyone knows what's happening when changes happen to the core framework, people can see it. Yeah. Um, so I, I really do think monorepos are fantastic for large teams. Absolutely. And the, the actual code within it should be split in sort of logical groups, which are basically code refactor, refactoring should be about teams yeah. or about people. Yeah. If a team is looking after the auth microservice, mm. that should be its own thing. That's a logical thing to make. Yeah, but it shouldn't then start calling code in another folder just because you're in the same repo. Yeah, like it it doesn't throw away good code practices. Yeah, it's not an excuse to create uh, an awful monolith. Yeah, um, it, it's just a way to um, to segment up um, areas of responsibility. I guess. Yeah, that's it. Um, so we've talked a bit about. Um, JavaScript and, and the ecosystem um, that that kind of grew out from jQuery and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, delivering modern web apps. So we mentioned Zite. Obviously, you can you can build in Next if you want, uh, and you can deploy to to Zite web services. You, you've yep. got the full stack there. Yeah. Um, do you miss the days of just drag and dropping stuff onto an FTP server? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get FileZilla out, drag it over. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot simpler and. I think if it's if it's a one man show, if it's you building your own website, yeah, 
Why not? <laughs> I mean, personally, I wouldn't anymore. But it was so much easier, wasn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. sometimes I'd... you'd have to drag and drop them twice just to make sure they fully went up. My favourite was I think you'd have uh, you'd have like the the kind of live web folder. You'd copy one over to it like web new. Yeah, yeah. You'd delete web and then rename web new. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah. Yeah. That, that was your rolling deployments. Yeah. And then old became old too. <laughs> I can't remember when that's from. And that's your production version control sorted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you you joke but yeah a lot of agencies did used to do that and yeah. some maybe even still do yeah. um where you just rename a file put the date on the end drag a new one in dot final dot final dot final yeah yeah uh mostly I- wordpress shops i imagine um <laughs> <laughs> slight dig there but um. slight <laughs> i think um what I guess what I'm saying is, so even some of my simple websites now, they have, um, you know, like the stack site, for example. Um, I was joking that you don't need to build React to everything, but um, it is built in Next, actually. Um, yeah. But but it, I do like it because it's, you know, for simple server-side rendered React apps with a few nice uh, dynamic sprinkles in it, it's, it's pretty nice. Uh, and it, it's not too much code because a lot of it's hidden away from you with, with the Next framework itself. Yeah. Um, but obviously from that, so, you know, Let's compare that to an old project. So the old project, you know, you'd probably have a HTML file, a CSS file. Uh, you'd probably require jQuery and all these other things from a CDN, possibly. Yep. Um, whereas now, you know, you've got you've got the the kind of entire folder full of full of node modules. You've got your your next framework files. You've got your actual code, which are probably React components. Yeah, um, it's slower to build and slower to deploy. Yep. and it comes with a lot of disadvantages. Yeah, but yeah, I guess the advantage is that you can build on these little tools that just do one thing and you can sort of compose together exactly what you want. Yeah. But it is a lot more complex now, isn't it? And yeah. I think I think that's something that the next team is trying to get around is especially with like the way that they can deploy stuff really quickly. Yeah. And all the layers compile at the same time and stuff like that, trying to get those speed improvements because it is quite slow to to deploy a web app sometimes mm. if you look at some of the aws um spin-up times for services like a cloudfront cdn it's like 20 minutes yeah and it's pretty ridiculous if you're just waiting on cloud formation to go and make all these things for you yeah like this is the way you're meant to be building apps and you're like <laughs> it doesn't feel like it cause <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it feels like a step back in some ways doesn't it I yeah think. you could almost buy a, a, um, a physical computer and set it up quicker but <laughs> it it is the right way to go because of the resilience it affords you if you set it up in the right way. But yeah. I think a lot of people will start doing stuff like using serverless and Lambda. Yeah. So nice, simple static site generator, stick it on S3. That bit's never going to go down. And then whatever fancy bits, maybe you've got like a checkout or a, a form or something, yeah. that can just be a Lambda function. And for a real small thing, that's the simplest thing that could possibly work. Yeah. I think as well, one of the things that we've done quite well uh, in recent years is, is, is make sure that 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 really nice parity between the development and production environments. So, yeah, um, obviously, um, amazing tools like Docker uh, and even even just all these modern environments that we deploy to, you know, Heroku, AWS, GCP, they're, they're all the solutions are there to ensure that things run the same as the way that you develop. them. Yeah. I mean, Docker's just been an absolute godsend, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really has. Um, I can't remember when docker came about but it, i think it i think it came out of a different project but it's it's really come on um i think docker as a company hasn't made all the right steps yeah because it was docker cloud wasn't there but 
Um, it's difficult though because you know picking a similar um, example you know NPM uh, you know th- there's been a, a turbulent year or two or probably longer actually for NPM as a company yeah um, and they, they, they sold didn't they they sold to someone else uh, within the last year I think I think it? so yeah um, but you know the, the NPM project itself is, is, is propped up by the community it's, it's something that is heavily worked on um, it's interesting how the two can conflict really isn't it yeah I mean the we used to see quite a bit of downtime and de- deployment issues around uh, Docker Hub and NPM. Yeah. NPM used to go down, and although I guess they would never recommend it, but you you, you put NPM install in your build and deploy process, yeah. so you can no longer make quick fixes or changes. Yeah. Or if GitHub goes down, because NPM, all the packages are on GitHub, so yeah, yeah. you've got all these like moving parts, and if you multiply all the uptimes together, you get... Not a very good uptime number. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, I was actually demoing GitHub Actions uh, yesterday, and uh, the day before, and a bit of that day, it went down. Yeah. I, was, I was like, but it works. Honestly, it's really good. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's the nature of everything being um, cloud based, heavily distributed, and and obviously there's there's hugely complex systems on behind GitHub and and so on. So yeah, I mean, it, by trying to make something simpler for one purpose you have to make it more complex in another area yeah i mean just downloading a package like jquery popping the the js file in your in your folder yeah and ftping it up that's perfectly nice distributed system there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if albeit manual um but uh, <laughs> yeah. there's nobody relying on anyone to yeah. do anything after that point i guess we should have seen it coming really because i think we we felt the first pain from this when you know everyone would reference that cdn for the jquery host yeah yeah and that would go down yeah well i think didn't someone yeah or, or jquery had to start paying for the hosting or something or I because don't remember because everyone on the internet was using yeah, it yeah <laughs> yeah um but yeah it's it's it has changed quite a bit and i think people are wising up to making it simpler yeah um especially, as you say, around static site generation. So hopefully we'll find our way out of this package management mayhem. (laughs) (laughs) At some point. um, Martin Fowler's famously, um, he he wrote a a pretty great post on high-quality software um, versus the speed of development and is it worth the cost. And it's quite interesting because it's kind of, we have the luxury of of just kind of chucking something together and putting it out there and and fixing it later. Yeah. I, I wonder what your view of that from a from a director of an agency, where obviously you you want to you don't want to compromise the quality, but you do have deadlines. Yeah, well, it's obviously a, a compromise to be made there. I think in Basecamp's first ever book, when they used to be called Thirty Seven Signals, it's called yeah. Getting Real. If you haven't read it, read it. It's good. It's a great book. It's still good. Um, still relevant. Yeah. They, they launched without the ability to actually pay for the thing. (laughs) They didn't have rolling subscription payments implemented yet. And their reasoning was, well, we've got 30 days to build that, (laughs) 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 which I thought was fantastic. And I think it was somebody that started LinkedIn said, if, if you've launched it, when you think it's ready, you've launched too late. Yeah. As soon as you launch and apologies to any clients who this affects, but um, (laughs) if you, push a client to do an early launch, their whole phase two checklist completely changes. Yeah. All the things that they think they needed that we've pushed into this mythical phase two, once you're live, they all the, a lot of them disappear. Yeah, they do. The people actually using it look at it yeah. and ask for completely different things. Yeah. So 
I think launching early is good. Launching bad code is not good. No. Um, well, I mean, you can have the quick, you can have an odd clutch here and there, but it it needs a fairly solid foundation. Otherwise, you can't change it easily. It's interesting. I, I guess define bad code because um, yeah. it, for me, if if there's some code that is is suboptimal and possibly a bit hacky, but it has a decent set of tests around it, yeah, you can sub it out after. If it's literally blue tacking the payment system together, that's not a good. Yeah, yeah. no. Well, yeah, it's there's a difference between messy code and bad code, I guess. Yeah. Like, you can quickly knock something together. If you know it works... Yeah. Then... How most of my projects start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but I, I do find some people like refactoring stuff for refactoring's sake yeah. and then break it in the process. Yeah, and, and also create incredible complexity from it. The amount of over-architected apps I've seen where you, you know, you've got a thousand different classes and objects for... Yeah, because they don't, didn't want to copy and paste this thing twice. Yeah. So they've made a whole abstract class thing that oh. does it. And oh. But then when you use it the third time, you have to add some other bullshit and it's yeah. just... It's... And then you end up with like this factory, factory, factory and you're in Java. <laughs> <laughs> I think copy and paste is perfectly acceptable until around the third or fourth time and you start thinking... Am I being an idiot? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless you get that, am I being an idiot? Pang, stop, <laughs> stop refactoring it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's where's that, like the harm with that. So how, you know, there's a lot of questions around how much you touch that particular part of the code. You know, how heavily. Yeah. You know, all those things. Um, yeah. Well, that's yeah. Technical debt is when it becomes difficult to quickly add new features. Yeah. So you should fix that. Yeah. But just changing it from old React to this, oh, the New React community's got this slightly new way of doing it now. Let's rewrite everything, <laughs> says the developer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, yeah, I'll just pitch that to the client. One second. <laughs> ah, it's a no. <laughs> in a stand-up on a Monday morning. So, yeah, yeah. I rewrote it all in Vue over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. You'd be surprised. Uh, the thing is, I, as, as, as developers, as, as programmers, we, we, we want to do that because we want to learn and want to understand the differences from these things. Yeah. Um, and there's absolutely value in that. I, I, I don't want it to sound like we're we're knocking um, the the itch to try and mess around with new technologies. Oh, there's definitely value in trying stuff out, porting stuff across. Yeah. It's just, is there business value? Yes, exactly, which is always the hard thing to balance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, the one thing I wanted to touch on, um, possibly to finish on, because we've offered on for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, from what we talked about, you feel like everyone uh, these days is using React, using Vue, using all these uh, fantastic new frameworks. But that's that's not the case. You know, a lot of agencies, as you um, kind of alluded to, um, are probably still using um, more primitive, more um, kind of I want to say traditional versions, perfectly reasonable solutions to absolutely to just content problems essentially yeah and I, I quite i admire that not not kind of bowing to the pressure uh, admittedly that must be harder i think maybe to hire because a lot of developers these days want to use the new technologies i'm not, I'm not sure yeah. i'm not sure i'd be interested to see how hiring is for some of the uh, the agencies that may still be using um, older technologies yeah um but yeah, there's there's a post um, by Monica Lent actually um, called Seven Absolute Truths I Unlearned as a Junior Developer. Um, and I just wanted to run some of the points by you to see if you agree with them or not. Yeah, of course. Um, so everyone writes tests. Well, not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you, you start out with the best intentions. Yeah. I think for a complex web application, you need some tests. Yeah. 
but yeah, the, the the reality of it is, it's often the thing that goes first, isn't it? I think it's uh, one of the good things from uh, a lot of these more modern frameworks uh, or modern projects that are just um, coming to light is that tests are more baked into the, the way that people build the software. So yeah. um, Rails in particular, um, the, Rails was massive on you know testing, RSpec, uh, usage was huge, uh, and, and, and you know writing tests to go with your controllers, your models, your views was, was just the done thing really. Yeah. Um, I assume it's the same in Laravel these days. You know, testing oh, yeah. is, is heavily enforced as part of the development cycle, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's, I think that's a, a new, a newer adoption. I don't think that's always been the case. You know, especially you know with, with jQuery when people were writing jQuery web apps. I mean, how the hell would you write tests for that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, at that time there wasn't a, a huge amount of. Um, tooling around headless you know driving of browsers or anything like that if you were going to do integration tests yeah um, very tricky wasn't it yeah so so not everyone writes tests not everyone writes tests and nor should they for everything it's no. it it has to be weighed up and yeah me and you uh, have chatted quite a lot about the power of just in some cases just writing integration tests because yeah. essentially all that matters is that it all glued together works properly if you hit an endpoint you've set up your factories and everything and you've got the database in the way that you want yeah hit this endpoint do i get this data yes perfect yeah. it that'll catch most stuff yeah like if you completely nobble your database connection or something it will flag an error yeah and you can refactor your code because it's not tightly coupled to the implementation detail yeah it just yeah i think an integration test goes a long way absolutely uh disclaimer we're not saying never write model uh level test no, no, <laughs> no, never write unit test never write <laughs> that's not what we're saying um okay so um the other thing that monica mentioned in her post that um the, the real tech fomo that people experience so we touched on that briefly um but you know the the, the worry from dev teams that oh we're so far behind what everyone else is using uh, i'm reading loads of blog posts about this tool or that tool and we should be using it immediately um it's interesting that people don't recognize during that process that legacy software and, and debt is, is real. And as you just highlighted, it's okay. Yeah, well, jQuery was FOMO at one point. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. like, oh, we need to use this new fancy thing. Why are we still building websites and tables? It needs to be yeah. CSS and all the rest of it. But I think people feel pangs of FOMO in varying amounts on tech. I think I'm a bit jaded to it all now. Like, a, yeah. It, new JavaScript framework comes out, you think, oh, not again. <laughs> but it does feel like everyone's settling on React at least now. So definitely, yeah, I think React's um, React and, and Vue. To, to I think they're they're both winners in that in that kind of um, competition at the moment. Do you feels. get developer FOMO? Um, no, not really. Uh, I I think the the thing for me is more around is it is it right to move to the new technology? So yeah. um, to be honest. I, I I still love the monolith. I still love Rails. I still think it's a fantastic framework. I still think there's a lot of things that you could do with Rails without much JavaScript, without an entire um, JavaScript framework. Actually, yeah. yeah. Um, for it, it really depends on the project and and the and the client and the all those things and the skill sets of the team. Yeah, um, I think for a lot of web applications, you don't need a bunch of JavaScript. No, I think actually uh, what I, what I'm seeing is a bit of a pattern is. Uh, the front ends are always built quite nicely because you you know there's there's quite a lot of um, literature out there about React and Vue and how to do things properly, if you will. And yeah, um, but what ends up happening is when that application becomes more mature and, and grows, 
um, you find that the back ends are not as not as well built. Be- yeah, because they're not they're not built um, they're not built with that in mind initially. Well, you'll see things like people assuming that this application will only ever live on one machine. Yeah, and right into the local file system and yeah. all the things that we were taught not to do. Um, is it what's eleven factor app stuff and like the Heroku yeah, the, stuff? Yeah, exactly. It's and this is all second nature to us, but new devs they don't really get it straight off the bat. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's interesting, really. Yeah, I think it's you know tools like Circle CI and, and different integration tools definitely go a long way to educate. You know, in terms of like the workflow stepped approach. Um, people understanding, uh, you know, oh, I, I tried to copy this from there in this step and that wasn't there. That inferior file system um, mindset definitely um, is becoming more common. But, yeah, definitely. But yeah, um, I, I guess because it's the same as the kind of 90s kids thing, isn't it? You know, we were there before the internet and, and yeah. well, before the internet, but, you know, we were there during the birth of it all and, yeah. and we saw it before and after. And I, I kind of feel like we have maybe benefited from the luxury of having to use physical file like file systems well, and physical servers. Yeah, I mean, I've probably made more mistakes than most, but you you have to make them all at least once to know not to do them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sometimes uh, more than once. More than once, <laughs> definitely more than once. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess the, the last point that I wanted to mention in Monica's post was the code quality matters most. I know we've touched on that a little bit, but... Um, I think the the thing that we don't talk uh, enough about is how it's it's okay to not have perfect code all the time. Yeah, um, it's nice if you if you have a project where you can really take your time and, and and build everything out and be really comfortable. But in reality, that's rarely the case. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think people are realizing that it has to be a sort of weighted business case. Yeah, and some code can just be temporary and just be there as a sort of placeholder scaffold kind yeah. of thing. Ideally having tests around it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tests, please. <laughs> Ace. Um, awesome. So um, I'm, I think we're just shuffling through all of our notes trying to figure <laughs> out if we've missed anything, but I can't really see um, see anything we've missed. But um, thank you so much for taking this nostalgic trip down, uh, down memory name. I hope we weren't waffling on too much. Uh, <laughs> but we do actually enjoy writing good code. And, yes. And thank you for joining us, I guess. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. And thank you for your time, James. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. All right, cheers. So that was my chat with James Hall from Parallax. Uh, I'd like to thank James for being the first guest on Offscript with me. Please subscribe if you want to hear more episodes like this. And if you want to know more about Hey or All Day Hey, the event and conference that I run, you can visit heyst.ac or alldayhey.com. So until next time, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>